Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 verses 15 through 26 will be our focus uh, this morning. As you are aware by now in the study of Hebrews, Hebrews is the ultimate Christ-centered sermon. It is all about Christ. It begins with Christ, it ends with Christ, and the middle is filled up with the deep truths that concern our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is true what Martin Luther said, that anything that one imagines of God apart from Christ is only useless thinking and vain idolatry. Hebrews brings this out. Hebrews brings a separation between the one who says, I believe in God, in a general way, and the one who says, I believe in God because of Christ, in Christ, of Christ, through Christ, Christ, our mediator. We need a mediator. You notice how many of the titles are Christ our priest, Christ our sacrifice, Christ our, our representative, Christ our mediator. And that's for good reason. It is all of Jesus Christ for us who are called, who are believers in him. Hebrews 9, 15 through 26 sets up an interesting analogy between uh, the covenant itself, as we have been speaking of, and a last will and testament, so to speak, and then also relates to how God, God's will, is mediated by Jesus. You might say the executor of God's will, the Lord Jesus. So there's some repetition here regarding the imagery, but there's some new thinking here, at least uh, to the book of Hebrews, uh, that is presented to us concerning Christ and the inheritance that he makes accessible to us. Hear God's word. Hebrews 9, 15, down to verse 26. Therefore he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, with our copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let us pray. Father, 
we do confess as a body that in the cross, in the death of Christ, is health. In the cross is life. In the cross is protection from enemies. In the cross is heavenly sweetness. In the cross is strength of mind. In the cross is the joy of the spirit. In the cross is the height of virtue. In the cross, there is perfection of holiness exhibited in Jesus, our Savior. There is no health of the soul, no hope of eternal life, no hope of eternal inheritance save the cross of our Lord Jesus, our mediator. We pray that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts and change our lives by the power of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, there have been uh, many excited discussions about the way translators have chosen to translate the first two verses we read. I want you to look there closely in an introductory way so that you might understand what is at issue. You wouldn't see it in your English translation, but I, I will alert you to it because I think it's important. Starting at verse 15, it says, Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Of course, this is referring back to Christ again. And the word covenant there, the new covenant, is diatheke, which is the Greek word uh, that explains the Hebrew concept of covenant. But continue so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see the word covenant there again in verse 15. That is diatheke, again. Now verse 16. For where a will is involved, in your version might say testament, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Now, interestingly, in verse 16, where it says will, it's the same word, diatheke. It could have easily been translated covenant again. And there's a reason, I believe, why this is the case. But continue on in the text, verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death. Again, the word will there is diatheke, could have been translated covenant. Since it is not in force as long as the one who's made it is alive. Now, verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. That word, as you would guess, is diatheke. The same Greek word is used and translated two different ways. Covenant in the first verse, covenant in the last verse, and the two verses in between as will. Why is this the case? Very simply, to avoid all the different arguments that uh, linguists like to use, it's very simple, I believe. That is, the word diatheke is a Greek word, and it was... Uh, popular in the Roman world, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, and it was used in a very wide-ranging uh, sense as last will and testament, a contract that was made by someone that would specify his or her will after they died, just like we have last wills and testaments today. Uh, but the same word is then used to translate the Hebrew notion of covenant, which is a contract, uh, a bond and blood sovereignly administered, the Hebrew word berit. It's the best way to describe that Hebrew concept of covenant. So it starts out by using the same language that has been developed in Hebrews up to chapter 9. It says covenant, the same way we would refer to it. The new covenant, uh, the covenant of grace. Then the author, continuing to use the word, is referring to a concept that it's more like the general use, last will and testament. Making a comparison between the Hebrew covenant and this last will and testament that is true in secular society. And so the English translators have tried to capture this what is clear in the language this this play on words so to speak by giving two different words to it sandwiching as it were the meaning covenant covenant and then will and testament in between bottom line brothers and sisters it basically means the exact same thing 
And there is an analogy drawn between what God has done in sending his son and what Jesus has provided for us between that and what a last will and testament is. Think about it for a moment. What is a last will and testament? Before you die, hopefully, and hopefully you've done this already, at least at some level, you start to analyze what it is that you have as assets and how they should be distributed. This is just good stewardship, right? Uh, that it would be distributed well after you die to whomever you designate. And so you draw out your will and designate those things, sitting with someone, a lawyer or someone who has a, a legal mind and knows how you should do this right, and you sit down and you designate everything while you're living. Now, while you're living, that has no effect until you die. When you die, then immediately that rolls into effect. If you don't have it, there are a bunch of bad things that can happen in our current day with what you have. So make sure you do it. And so you do this, and then when you die, it's activated, as it were, in the inheritance that you have prescribed goes out to the individuals you have designated it to. This is what a last will and testament, at least simply how it works. That is precisely the comparison or analogy God is making through the human author with what God's will has done, what Christ has secured and activated and distributed in what we receive. God's will is to call a people to himself. That's his will. And the agreement is, is that the Son would be the provider of life for those who need life, who need redemption from their sins, you and I. That's God's will. It is not activated, actually activated, until the death of the one who writes the will is sure. That's the death of Christ on the cross. Even those who came before Christ did not receive their ultimate redemption until he ratified the covenant for real on the cross. The blood of bulls and goats all pictured it, forecasted it, had certainly a sense of the means of grace pointing to the Savior who would come. In the Old Testament, they look forward to the Savior's work. We look back at the Savior's work. But the actual activation of it, the ratifying of it, happened at the death of the testator, which is Jesus' death. And then when he dies, the inheritance that is in God's will for us, who has been redeemed, is released to us. Not in the future somewhere that we have not yet experienced, but we receive now the distributions, if you will, that come from his will, which is the forgiveness of sins ultimately. Much more, obviously, comes under the forgiveness of sins. But if you are like me, I am so ecstatic that my sins are forgiven that all, everything else takes on a new perspective, a new meaning. That's the ultimate gift we receive. The ultimate inheritance we get is the forgiveness of sins. In actuality, what this text, is as complex as it may seem, says is that the death of Christ releases the inheritance of God's forgiveness for those who are called to receive it. Allow uh, me, in our time together, to note four important features of this analogy between Christ as the executor of God's will and the concept of a last will and testament. First, please note, in the first part of verse 15, God determines who will receive his inheritance. The same way you would determine who receives what from your estate, God determines who will receive his inheritance. He doesn't just put his inheritance out there and just anyone can pick at it. Rather, he identifies and calls those who will receive his inheritance according to the good pleasure of his will. Look at verse 15, the first uh, section of that verse. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And don't miss this. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There is a clear designation of those who would receive the distribution of this forgiveness of sins. What is meant by calling here? Those who are called. Now, when I was a kid, I used to watch a show uh, called The Electric Company. Anyone remember The Electric Company? I don't know if it's even on anymore or whatever, but it was on public television. And the beginning of the show is all I remember. You remember the beginning of the show was? 
hey, you guys, and then these kids would come running. That would be a general call. You call, people can come if they want. That's not what's in this text. That's a general call. That's just a calling that you never, you know, call the kids in for dinner. They may or may not come on the first call. It takes dad going out to get them by the, that's, that's a general call. When we think of a calling, we're thinking of a proclamation or just a general offer. That, my brothers and sisters, is not what is being spoken of here in this, this use of calling. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Uh, the word itself carries no special meaning on its own. It's the context and the overall application to other texts that we learn what this calling means. It's all over the New Testament. Some have named it well, calling it effectual calling. That is, it's effective. It's not the kind of calling we do where it's offered up to anyone who might want to come. It's a calling that is effective 100% of the time because it's God who does the calling. People come who are called by God. It would rather be like, instead of me calling for my children to come downstairs to eat, it would be calling, but as I'm calling, I'm going to grab them, pick them up, and bring them down with me. You could say I called them, but they were coming because I got them. I brought them down. And I had to because they couldn't on their own for whatever reason. Effectual calling is altogether different than general calling. That's what we have here. And God determines who will receive his inheritance. Those who are called may receive it. And the reason why he has to apply a calling like this is because dead men and women cannot hear to even respond to a call. So he has to, in this special effectual calling, at the same time, simultaneously, work life in that person so they can hear it all. And this calling works 100% of the time. In fact, one of the great uh, terms or labels given to the church is ekklesia, the Greek word called out once. We're called out from the world. And it's not that the world doesn't have the same calling or the, hear the same message. It's that only those who have ears to hear and those people are those who God has given ears to can come out, the called out ones. Francis Turretin, one of the scholastic reformers, said it well. This calling is an act of the grace of God in Christ by which he calls men dead in sin and lost in Adam through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to union with Christ and to the salvation obtained in him. Uh, even better, it is said in our shorter catechism, question 31, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. The free offer of the gospel must go forward. We freely offer the gospel, but recognize only those who are called by God will receive that, will come to that. We always and everywhere must be making that free offer of the gospel known, knowing and recognizing who it is that will call people to himself. I would like you also to note, that's just the first part of verse 15, how it is that the death of Christ releases the inheritance of God's forgiveness. This comparison between Christ as the executor of God's will and the concept of last will and testament. Also, we might note, Christ mediated that inheritance by his death. We'll focus on what the inheritance is in a moment, but recognize that he mediated that inheritance by his death. Look at verse 15 in its uh, totality. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since 
a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see the forgiveness of sins, the redemption for our transgressions as being really what makes up our eternal inheritance. But recognize, please, how we receive it. It's Jesus. And it doesn't say that he is a mediator of the new covenant, one of many mediators of the new covenant. It says he is the mediator of the new covenant. That is, he is the only way to have our sins forgiven. There is no other way. You can't work them off. You can't get someone else to do it for you. Only Christ can mediate the benefits of the new covenant to us. Mediator. The Greek word means a go-between, an uh, intermediary between two parties. Paul describes, you might remember in Galatians, Moses as a mediator of the first covenant. It's referred to in this way in Hebrews as well. He acted as a liaison between God and the Israelites. You can think of all the times where Moses talked to, to God on behalf of the people. Actually begged God not to wipe them out at times, as frustrated as Moses would get with them himself. That's a picture of a media, uh, mediator. However, in a far superior way, as we have learned in Hebrews... We learn that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He established it through his own death, commissioning his disciples to preach the good news. Now he sits at the right hand of God interceding. He is our mediator. Paul, in writing to the young pastor, says, There is one God, Timothy, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Remember, Timothy's in the midst of the Greek world where there's all sorts of people claiming all sorts of things and all sorts of gods being identified. And Paul is saying to this young pastor, as you pastor this church, recognize this is going to be so crucial because there will be so many things that cloud this. Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If you keep this straight, much, much will go well with you. Most will follow through if you understand the significance of our need for Christ. Look at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. This is that reference. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Jesus mediates the new covenant by ratifying it with his own blood, his own verifiable death. But then look at verse 18 down to verse 22, because there's an elaborate explanation, much what, uh, of what has already been spoken of in Hebrews. But look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And remember what the first covenant means here, in particular, the ceremonial sacrificial part of Moses' law uh, that he gave at Sinai. It's not all that came before, but that particular portion. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people... He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Have you ever thought about sprinkling a book with blood? It would never go away. The stain would always be there. You would always see. You would always recognize how it is that you have this covenant, the book. It's ratified by blood. This blood pictures the blood that would ultimately ratify it. You never get away from it. You can't get a blood stain out. And there it would be on a book. And a book is a precious thing in those days. They didn't just throw it out and get a new one. When the hymnal wore out, they didn't buy a new one. It was the one they had. And it had blood sprinkled on it, never to be forgotten. Verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood both on the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Do you see how vivid that is? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. I recite that often when we're partaking in communion. So we recognize the seriousness the seriousness of our sin and the need for, the use for blood to purify. The use of blood was tremendously costly in the Old Testament church. Uh, you know that animals can cost you a lot if you've even got a dog. 
But if you have a herd of sheep or goats, or even if you are fortunate enough to have a bull, okay, the idea of killing it, killing it for the sacrifice is very costly. Not to mention it's personal. There's no way you could tell me, if you're an Israelite, you're a member of the church in the Old Testament, that you don't have little children and that they're not naming those little sheep. You know they are. So it's time to get little Fluffy and bring her in, or bring him in, to the tabernacle. And no one could ever escape the seriousness of sin because you would grow personally attached to these animals, some would, and even if you didn't, there was this, this sustenance that you needed from those animals, whether it be the wool it provided or the milk it provided or eventually the food it provided, and here you're using it for a sacrifice on a regular basis. This had to be very burdensome to everybody, and it constantly drew their attention to the seriousness of sin and the need for a life to be given, and that all the sacrifices you would ever do would never, ever meet up to the ultimate one that this all forecast. You would have to keep sacrificing bulls and goats and sheep and lambs and so forth. A vivid lesson in the seriousness of sin. Verse 22, the second part, without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. God cannot just overlook it. He is a just God. There must be a payment made for the sins that have been committed against him. Look at verse 23 as we see the Old Testament sacrifice as a picture for the actual acceptable sacrifice that would come in Christ. Verse 23, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified, copies being those earthly things, the tabernacle and all the, uh, all the things that went in it, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, that is, into the true thing itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That, my brothers and sisters, is a mediator, and a worthy, worthy mediator. After many millennia of prophetic buildup, Jesus comes to give his most precious blood in the true Holy of Holies on your behalf. Think about it. Day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, repeated sacrifice, so much work, so much blood, so much smell, never any relief. And now Christ comes into the heavenly Holy of Holies, the real Holy of Holies. One man, the Messiah, sacrifices to end all sacrifice. Look at verse 25 and verse 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as a side but important note, these two verses in Hebrews correct the erroneous doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, which asserts Christ's sacrifice on the cross is somehow made present at every Mass. Now understand the teaching there. Many still think that, that uh, the Roman Church asserts that Jesus is sacrificed every time the Mass takes place. That's a medieval doctrine. That's true. That church held that for about 400 years. When the Reformation came and the Reformers challenged that notion, uh, the church revised its position in 1547 with the position it still holds today at the Council of Trent. It said it's not that he sacrificed over and over again, but that that sacrifice is somehow present really every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. So it's not quite the medieval position, but it's still not a biblical position as it relates to the fact that once for all he did this. And each time we eat and each time we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
We don't connect cosmically somehow with the actual uh, blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins in that sense. But rather, in a definite mysterious way, God feeds us through the remembrance of this death on the cross, this grace of the death of Jesus on the cross. And that's totally different than saying that we somehow tap into the actual sacrifice that's going on, this perpetual sacrifice. Christ mediated our eternal inheritance by his death. He, didn't, he doesn't continue to mediate that portion, if you will. He has, committed his, he has committed his life, laid it down. He has mediated his death to us. And now his blood has an active, continual cleansing effect, but he is not being continually re-sacrificed. No need. No need whatsoever. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. There is only one act, one author says, of pure love. This is true. Only one act of pure love. No matter how loving we are towards one another, our children, whoever we might think we have somehow an untainted love for, it's just not true completely. Not like it is with Christ. Only one act of pure love, unsullied by any taint of ulterior motive, has ever been performed in the history of the world. Namely, the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. Christ mediated the eternal inheritance by his death. Please note a third feature of the analogy between Christ as the executor of God's will and the concept of a last will and testament. Thirdly, we receive an inheritance, not a wage. It is a gift. Please, please gather this again. We receive an inheritance, not a wage. A wage is something you get for work you do. That is not what we receive from God. Verse 15, once more, therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. What is a promised eternal inheritance? We know particularly it has to do with this sin, the forgiveness of sins. But the definition of inheritance, remember what it is. Because I know we'll say it, but in our hearts we often think we're earning it. Or God's giving us, he's done this much and now we're keeping it up. We're maintaining it. That's not an inheritance, that's a wage. And the only wages we get are what the wages of sin produce, which is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So what is an inheritance? That which is inherited is a title or property or estate that passes by law to the heir on the death of the owner. So the owner owns it, has earned it, has accumulated it, and gives it as a gift to someone else. The person doesn't earn it. Now, I understand in human terms, others, that kind of thing people will do, a sinful manipulation parents will do sometimes, or grandparents will do, or whoever, and whoever their favorite is, and they'll play this out on earth so those people know uh, that you won't get an inheritance. I've heard people say that. I'm going to cut you out of your inheritance. Okay, that's not how God gives inheritances. It's truly an inheritance when God gives it. It's by the good pleasure of his own will who he distributes it to and what he distributes. An inheritance is a practice of passing on property, titles, debts, or, and obligations upon the death, death of the individual. It has long played an extremely important role in human societies, says one source. An eternal inheritance, then, refers to something that will then endure forever. It's an eternal inheritance. Christ at his death mediates that kind of inheritance to us. It's a very important fact that we consider that it's not a wage we earn, but an inheritance, a gift we get. Something, in effect, you don't even have choice. When you show up, now you could, I suppose, in real life, if you will, just not take it. But when it's bequeathed to you, it's yours. 
is not dependent on your choice as to whether it's your personal property. It becomes your personal property. And this is true in the ultimate sense with what God gives us. Remember, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is important for our fourth and final feature concerning the analogy between Christ as the executor of God's will and the concept of a last will and testament. Finally, our eternal inheritance in Christ is, hear this, is being distributed now. So often I talk to Christians who think it starts when you die. That's eternal. That's eternal life. It is not. Eternal life starts to, you're eternal. You're an eternal being. Everybody is. But for you, the believer, eternal life starts when he breathes new life into you, whenever that was. And so eternity for you is now. And he gives us, he bequeaths God's forgiveness to us immediately upon us saving us. So we're receiving the inheritance. It's not just that we look forward to it, because we'll receive it and experience it in its fullness someday. But we receive it and experience it now at a level that is so crucially important. Verse 26, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He did it then, and it began then in its fullest sense with us. Our eternal inheritance is based on our union with Christ. Let's hear a few texts of Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but listen to the verses in this light. John 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Children of God, that is, heirs of God. Romans 8, 16 and 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So our union with Christ gives us part in that inheritance that is Jesus's. Galatians 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do you see the continuity of the covenant? Do you see the sonship that we have in Christ? Do you see the adoption that is ours? That we are heirs of God. It's not just this. To receive the eternal inheritance from God, a person must possess the life of God. That is salvation resulting in eternal life. That's what Titus 3 says. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see the eternal inheritance is based on our union with Christ and it's under the shadow of the forgiveness of sins now. The beautiful protective covering of the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 5, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. We share the destiny of our Savior. That's the inheritance. Ephesians 1, also we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained, it says, in the past tense, in, in the ongoing action, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. 
That brings us to Hebrews 9.15, that we are now receivers of redemption, the transgressions that we have committed, and receivers of eternal and eternal inheritance. Okay, so what, you might say? Ultimately, to sum up this portion, the death of Christ releases the inheritance of God's forgiveness for those who are called to receive it. Here's the so what. Imagine a man, and this is a, this is a, a semi-true story, that is, it's in its general terms. Guy was uh, fighting in one of our nation's wars. While he was at war, or before he had left, he was essentially bankrupt, almost homeless. Before he had left, or just as he left, a rich aunt died and left him basically her whole estate. He lived, came back, and was given essentially uh, an account number that had all the money that his aunt had left him. Instead of going to that account and drawing upon it, not totally understanding his new position and how different it was, he more or less went back to the old lifestyle he had, never accessing the inheritance that had been given to him. And he lived a rather pathetic life, especially in light of what he had access to. I would suggest to you that many Christians today live exactly the same way. How so? I don't mean with worldly... uh, the things we gain, you know, the monetary wealth or the things that may make us look okay, I mean they carry around with them such a burden of sin and a lack of belief and connection that Christ has forgiven them and they have clear, a clear path, a clear relationship with the Lord. And they look the part, they come to church every Sunday, in fact they come to church to kind of relieve their guilt. They come so that they can feel a little guilty by whatever the preacher says or do a little duty, but in their hearts they still have sin that they don't believe God had the power to forgive. Ultimately, that's what they're doing. It could be anything. It could be a sin from the past, uh, some sexual sin that was committed against you or you committed, and you just don't believe there's any way that God could forgive you for this. And you carry that, and instead of just carrying it, it actually begets more sin because you think it doesn't matter anymore because God just doesn't accept you for what you've done. He could never accept me. If anyone here knew what I did, they wouldn't accept me either. It could be hatred and bitterness that you've harbored towards someone in the past. A broken relationship that was your fault that you still know about and still carry around with you. It could be that you were dishonest somehow. You've been a liar and a cheat some way. And you've come to this point in your life and you recognize the gospel message, but you don't draw upon the inheritance because you cannot come to believe that your sin, no matter how great it is, can be taken away by God's forgiveness provided in Christ. And you live a beat-down, defeated life could be that you continue to live in light of sins that are committed against you in the past. You struggle today with sin. And I would suggest one of the biggest reasons why we continue to struggle with sin is that there's not a real grasp of the forgiveness of God in Christ. It's really a grace matter, not a works matter. In other words, we don't believe the grace of God can cover the sin that I've committed. So we get into this self-justification in this rut, and we keep doing the same thing over and over again, just saying it doesn't matter because he can't forgive me for any of it. When we sin, we begin to hide from God. The sin gets a greater hold on us. The sin intensifies. And the death of Christ comes, becomes farther and farther away when we need to draw closer and closer to it. Because each time we eat this bread, this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the Lord's death frees you from all the bondage you have ever had to your sin. And to say that Christ's blood cannot cover your sin is to do a great affront to the blood of Christ. And when you'll start to see 
victory over sin in your life, it will be directly relative to your appreciation for the true forgiveness that's been given to you, has been mediated to you by Jesus. It's really not a humble thing to say, woe is me, I'm a sinner. Really what it is, is it's a bold proclamation of pride that know your message is not true, God, about forgiveness, the forgiveness of my sins. I would suggest to you it has more to do with pride than humility when we sit here acting as though we cannot be forgiven or not be set free from some bondage that we are under. I've never met a person who's in bondage of sin who's dwelt very long on the death of Christ and talking with them. It's more about what their problem is or what has happened or can you relate with me rather than I need to go to the cross again because that's the place where I'm set free. That's where I tap in to the internal, eternal inheritance that Christ has provided for me, which is the forgiveness of sins. The death of Christ releases the inheritance of God's forgiveness designated for you, his children. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, our leader and Savior, our Redeemer, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Lord Jesus, you are the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, the world. You are the Word. (coughs) You are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the light of the world, the good shepherd, the deliverer, our high priest, Lord Jesus, you are the author of life. You are God with us, the Son of God, the Holy One of God. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord Jesus, you are the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb of God, the Alpha and the Omega. You're the firstborn of all creation. Lord Jesus, this morning, our particular focus, you are the mediator of a new covenant. And we ask you to change us to live in accordance to the inheritance of God's forgiveness that you have released upon us by your perfect death. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.